The presenting sponsor for On Education is Classcraft. We're excited to announce Classcraft's new story mode, which makes it easy for educators to harness the power of stories. Episodes 1 and 2 of Season 1 are ready for you and your students to play today, and it's completely free. To learn more about Classcraft and the new story mode, simply visit classcraft.com slash oneducation. I heard it makes a great flower. <laughs> right. And then that you don't even taste the cricket taste. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to On Education, part of the On Podcast Media Network. I am Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will discuss the power of student civic engagement through the act of protesting. The bests are back this week, and we will rank our top educational books. And our guest this week is educator and speaker Ken Shelton. So I was thinking earlier today that we... um haven't released like a main episode of on education in almost two weeks mm-hmm. um but we've still released content like, lots of content great content. interviews almost every two or three days since in the last two or three weeks so um all all about the impact education conference the interviews we did there um i strongly encourage folks to go back even if you weren't at the conference and you don't think that these are relevant to you keep in mind these are interviews that we have just like we have any other time um they're not conference specific necessarily talking to cool people about who they are and what they do um go back and and listen to those um because they're they're really great they were a ton of fun so um so check check those out and we actually have um the other live show that we did with michael cohen in front of of an audience still to be released and we Jennifer have Jennifer Clifton talks to us about teachers' mental health. It was a fantastic conversation that Amazing. should that should not be missed. Uh, she is a she's a uh, expert in the area of teacher mental health, not just she mental health awesome. in general, uh, and has tons of strategies and just a great conversation that you'll totally. you won't want to miss. So there's there's lots more from Impact still, and now we have this episode that that is out. Um, so there's lots going on. Impact Education Conference was awesome, just amazing. And uh, I mean everything from the participants, the vendors, and then obviously our speakers and uh, featured presenters and keynote speakers. It felt like. Uh, some of like some of the best conferences that we have ever been to, where you feel that the audience and the participants are highly engaged, and they have all these opportunities to be able to go ahead and connect with yeah, yeah, yeah. those nationwide, if not globally known speakers, and be able to go ahead and connect them, have conversations with them, even have dinner, you know, like those kinds of things is really amazing at these at this size of a conference, those types of things. I highly recommend it to anybody for next year, especially if you're okay traveling to Minnesota in December. <laughs> we got to go to the Flipgrid office, which was pretty slick. Yes. Gosh, I, I love Flipgrid. I love Flipgrid, the, the not only the product, but the people that are part of the community. And that's what I've, you know, when we've, we've had the opportunity of speaking or having a few conversations, we even have this one interview on YouTube, I think, yes. or on Instagram. Yeah, I can't, yeah, yeah. I can't it's remember where it's at. You'll want to just see that just because it's, it's amazing how people let us in basically into their back offices and yeah. then just have a conversation about 
kind of what's going on as far as education, how uh, Flipgrid is, tr- is making an impact currently and how they basically are super uh, engaged with their customer base so much yep. so that they change the product to fit the needs of their customers. So all of their innovations and their movement towards uh, making the product better and better have all come from obviously us, the customers, the educators and the students and those and so on and so forth. So amazing. So obviously we're hoping we'll be back next year. Um, and yeah. we're count, we're counting on, <laughs> hey, we know you listen source well people. So, you know, <laughs> we love you guys. I, I mean, I'm telling you, great I've, job. I've been great to job. the previous. Previously, it was called the Ties Conference, and yeah. this reboot of this conference and renaming of it was a fa- a, a super success. Uh, sure. We talked to a lot of participants, and everybody was very happy about all of the different tracks that were being offered. So it wasn't heavily focused just specifically on ed techs. Just giving those opportunities to go in and branch out to those specific topics that really are relevant to you currently as an educator. Uh, great idea. Uh, the lunch things that we did as far as the interviews where someone could bring their lunch and then be able to listen to, again, globally renowned speakers and then be able to interact with them and actually ask questions uh, regarding tough issues, you know, whether it be like screen time totally. or whatever it might be, you know, the Jordan Shapiro interview. And then, of course, the Michael Cohen one that's about to come out. Uh, just fantastic conversations. So from cold Minnesota – to sunny South, to sunny South <laughs> Beach, uh, we will be at FETC. Um, we've been speaking to a bunch of the featured speakers. We have Ken Shelton on a little bit later this episode, who was absolutely fantastic. Um, so we will be. I assume that we will be in the hallway like last year, and we will have our full booth. Please, if you're at FETC, come and say hi, hang out. Uh, we're going to do our best to create a little comfy kind of atmosphere for people to just kind of sit and chill. For sure. Um, and then and then uh, we'll definitely invite a bunch of people on the podcast and do we're going to do it all over again. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention is the Epic Games Party, the... Um, uh, the Fortnite party is still on, still happening. Very excited about that. So that's on the Thursday night. And I'm not 100% sure if it's sold out or not, but Thursday, January 16th, 5.30 till 8.30, uh, the link will be that's in the show notes. <laughs> Three hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, so yeah. there's food and drinks and and video games. I mean, how can that... And, and our charming personalities, so... And I mean, Steve how Isaacs. can you and, <laughs> and and Steve Isaac? So how can you possibly go wrong exactly with that? So um, so please come to the FETC Epic Games Party. Um, we again the the link to register is in the show notes, and I'm not 100 percent sure whether it's sold out or not. Uh, if you really 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 want to come and you got nothing else to do, you know, send me a DM on Thursday. During the day, he's connected. I, I'm, I might be connected, so we'll uh, we'll see what we can do. Awesome. Um, yo, what would you get? What'd you get for Christmas? Um, what did I get for Christmas? I, oh, I got this uh, one of those fitness watches for my wife oh, and my kids. What kind? What kind? I, uh, just a Fitbit, Fitbit number two, and uh, it's been kind of getting me interested in going. Uh, this gamification stuff really works. I mean, as far as getting you sure up and does. going and trying to break yeah. records and get badges. Tell I actually, me, have you, have actually, you walked in place? 
No. Just to get steps? No, but I have walked in the oh. house, up and down the stairs yeah. and all around uh-huh. the things, just to finish yeah, yeah. off uh, a specific amount, which is so yeah. funny because it's just a just a random number out there. <laughs> it, it'll happen. It'll yeah. happen. It's really That's good, hilarious. though. I'm happy to, to get that. Uh, and then just to have a watch, too. I uh, haven't had one in a while, so that was awesome. Nice. That's yep. exciting. Yeah. I, uh, How about you? I got... I got Octopath Traveler, which I've been complaining about for a long time, was so expensive. Mm. Um, so it's a game for Switch, so I got it for Switch. Nice. Um, so I've been playing a little bit of that. I also got something that, it's funny, my in-laws bought me a, they, they buy me tools. Mm. I don't know what they're saying about me when Build they buy something. me tools. They're Fix just things. like, you know... <laughs> It's it's like yeah we know you can do computer stuff you dummy but you know go fix a car sometimes or something like that okay. I think that's what they're saying or like go something to that effect go go mud some drywall you're not impressing me with this computer nonsense um, so they buy me tools a lot okay. um, and but they bought me something and it's always something odd you know like this year was there was like a torque wrench mm. it's like uh, or something i don't even know what the hell it was to be honest i don't it's <laughs> a little torque wrench on the top <laughs> right something it was something it was a, it was a wrench looking type thing <laughs> but anyways that's not the actual tool Tristan okay. i'm talking about yep. they bought me a automatic tire inflator like hmm. um uh so you set like the pressure and you're you hook up your hose yeah. to whatever tire you're inflating. You set it to the pressure you want. You press a button and it inflates the tire and it That's stops when it gets to the pressure. I like that idea. I've actually, I actually wanted one for my bike hmm. in the basement uh, for my my road my my riding bike um, because um, I find that the tire deflates every once in a while when the temperature changes, especially dramatically. Um, so I was looking to get one. And I don't think they knew. I think they just wanted to buy me a tire inflator. I, you know, because <laughs> well, that's cause exactly bought... what you wanted, right? They read but your mind. It was literally a purpose, probably. <laughs> right? No, totally. But it was literally what I wanted. So I, I'm pretty happy that I got Good. a tire inflator. Of all the things to be excited about, I haven't tried it yet, but uh, I'm excited to uh, to dig Test into it. it. Yeah, yeah, to like set a pressure and hit a button and. Knee. Wow, magic. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I've been um dude, I've been playing Minecraft hardcore mode again so mm-hmm. much that I've been dreaming about it. Ooh, that's freaky. And and <laughs> A I'm block sh- dreams. Oh, it's <laughs> It's intense, but I'm on a roll, so I'm I'm doing well and You're feeling alive. good about it. And I've been streaming it a ton, yes, mm-hmm. um, which has been fun. Uh, you know, not a lot of people come see me stream, but listen, hey, if you see me tweet on Twitter or on Facebook or wherever you, you see me say that I'm streaming, come by, go say hi, and, and watch. Especially if you don't know anything about Minecraft and you want to learn a little bit, because that's uh, uh, I'm happy to I'm happy to talk to you while I'm mining for diamonds. Um, <laughs> You're playing, a game, you're playing a game called Outward, which yes. I've never heard of. Highly Tell recommend me about it. Outward. So, uh, I, I had heard about it as a game that all of these uh, typical gaming magazines, I want to call them, that they basically didn't even give a chance, didn't rate the actual game. It came out in, in, in 2019, uh, early 2019, uh, but now it's 
a whole bunch of critics are like, this game is awesome. So I, I was super excited to get it. Uh, it's multiplayer. Uh, it's even multiplayer co- couch co-op you can join I was going to see. I just saw it's a both, screenshot where it's split screen. It's split screen local co-op if you wow. want. Or you can go, obviously, online multiplayer and play in the same RPG type of world. Uh, it doesn't feel as beautiful as some of the stuff you know, in the newest versions of uh, mine or sorry, Skyrim. Um, but it's, it's a similar vein. And if you're a role-playing game, open world type of uh, uh, video game person, psh, this game is awesome. It's so fun. And it's, it's very difficult too. So right from the beginning, you have a, you, you know, most games set you up with a hero and you're getting powers as you go through. This is like, you're just some normal, person off the street and you're just trying to survive baby <laughs> you're just it trying to do the best you can yeah it, so, it looks so, interesting yeah it's really good it's actually it's very very well done and it's uh definitely got all of us hooked in this household that are the video game players nice yeah. and the local co-op must be great for you and, and the boys yes that is fantastic so you don't have to have an extra xbox live sure you know membership or whatever might be you can just click the button boom split screen co-op good idea that's sweet nice local co-op is one of those things that's dying yeah there's not a lot of local co-op games anymore i know and that that's those are the types of games that i'm actually looking a lot uh, out for a lot just for being able to to play play again with our kids exactly yep we should do it best about that Local co-op, local co-op games you can play. So people will explain what co-op means, but 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 then we'll kind of go down the line because I have several that I really really love. There you go. Well, that's there's a there. Write that down. (laughs) I am. (laughs) (laughs) So so interesting article um, popped up, um, you know, in the Washington Post about Mm -hmm. student student protests. Yes, and um, that one of the nation's largest school districts is going to let kids take time out of school to protest. And obviously, you know, our, our friends on the, on the right seem to have a a problem with this. Talk about this article a little bit. I think the main key to it though, people are lashing on to the part about getting a day, one day off of school where you can designate to protest. That's just one of the things you could do during this time. It's like, it's basically for civic engagement. And then I was thinking about this too, as far as, how really important it has been in the history of the United States, uh, let's just call it recently, recent history of the United States, um, for students to actually protest and then how much of an impact that actually has made on a ton of different uh, legislation, uh, amendments even. Uh, mm-hmm. And students have led the charge on all kinds of things. Um, and one of the the takes that I really hate right now, and I don't know if you've been hearing this too on other podcasts or whatever it might be, but Joe Rogan, I, I like Joe Rogan a lot, and I listen to his podcast almost every day. Uh, it's because it's that well done. But one of his takes is he basically diminishes and kind of mocks the power of like a Greta Thunberg and her speaking, you know, as far as like what her message was mm-hmm. and diminishing it or mocking it because she's so young. And that really aggravates me. Like, I'm like, because, you know, they don't have the experience. They're going to blow up the world. They really don't know what it's going to be like. It's like, well, it's a, those are important things. And actually, I would much rather have a bunch of 
really heavily civically engaged youth knowing exactly what are the issues out there and how it's affecting them and how it's going to affect their future than the opposite, which is a disengaged kind of like, well, we I don't even know what's happening over there, you know, that kind of uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. So um, it's such an important thing. Uh, and I'm super happy that this district is, it sounds like it's one of the first to go ahead and give students the ability to go ahead and take an actual excused absence to do something like this, to to basically engage civically. Nice. Um, I mean, if you, anyone who knows anything about my politics knows that I'm obviously for this. Yes. And I'm, I'm actually like, I'm actually pro like child suffrage. Like I think that younger kids should have voting rights. Mm. Um, I'm, of what I'm, age I'm, would you go down to? So obviously, <laughs> not obviously, I have put some thought into this because okay. I do, I do get asked it every once in a while. Um, uh, so what I've come down on is, is I feel like a lot simpler uh, an answer, and that's that if you pay taxes, you should vote. Okay. So it's not a necessarily an age. Like, I mean, what's the youngest that kids work at a job where they pay actual taxes? You, like work at a McDonald's. Like you can work at a I, McDonald's at like 16? 16. You can get ish. special permits, or at least you used to be able to. I'm not sure, depending on the state yeah. probably. But I would think you could probably work some sort of part-time thing legally at 15-ish, yeah. 14-ish. I was working at Domino's when I was 15. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, But I don't know if the rules have changed as far as that yeah. here recently. My sons are too young at this, at this point in time to be to do that but i'm thinking you're right so you think as soon as you can if you are a if you earn a paycheck and you're paying a tax you know a tax year then that following year you should you should go ahead and uh and vote it's and be literally able to vote. it's literally the law though like yeah. like if you are taxed you should have a say in how those mm. taxes are spent mm. it's taxation without representation to not so I mean, it seems really simple. And there's tons of paperwork and tons of like documentation that goes along with taxes. Like you are on the system oh, yeah. as soon as you start paying taxes. So, I mean, it goes along with the whole idea of like automatic voter registration and all this other stuff that my crazy left-wing ideas perpetuate. <laughs> you know, who would have thought giving people the right to vote would be something important? But, you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But like if, if you pay taxes, you're in the system boom turn on turn on your voter roll registration automatically and listen if you're if you're paying taxes you should have a say in how they get spent that's it's really it feels like it's that simple mm. and you know you know the classic argument is obviously that they're not mature enough and i would just point to all the boomers out there that that have made <laughs> some some of the worst decisions in the history of humanity I- um, yeah. you know, <laughs> you, so you're going after the boomers again. I hear <laughs> I, I <laughs> totally. So it's like, don't I? I have no time for that. That is the weakest argument for this because the other, the inverse, the 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 older folks have just as equally bad judgment if you're going to say that young kids have bad judgment. And I reject the premise even entirely, anyways. I think that. Anyways, I think student yeah. protests are amazing. Um, and listen, if the right has a problem with student protests, maybe the right shouldn't do things that make kids want to protest. So, 
you know, I, I said it more aggressively in our show notes, so I'm not going to repeat what I wrote, mm-hmm. but it's like, listen, just, you know, stop polluting the water and the air and make it so that our kids feel like they have a place where they can live and not that's going to, you know, fall apart around them. You know, I, I always felt comfortable as a parent bringing kids into the world. I've become increasingly uncomfortable with what I've done in Mm. a weird way over the last, well, listen, I just think about, think about what it's going to be like in 2070, let's say. So about 50 years, 50 years from now, we're, we're quite pot. Well, you're, you won't be, but I'll probably be dead. I'm going to be dead. And, I'm predicting that right now. <laughs> let's just say, I mean, yeah. I mean, we're well past peak oil. Oil's <laughs> going to be virtually gone. Our kids are going to be eating cricket flour. It's true, and it's true. Very, I, I, a high I, possibility. I, I remind Cheryl all the time that eating bugs is absolutely in our kids' future. So you hey, know, Matt, we heard it makes just... a great pr- uh, pow- or flour, <laughs> right? And then that you don't even taste the cricket taste. <laughs> <laughs> Man, anyway. I love where I love where our podcast goes sometimes. <laughs> but listen, um, the world that our kids are inheriting from us is a gong show, and it's it's not getting better at the moment in a lot of respects. But, so, but one of the things, just circling back, is yeah. their voices have a lot of solutions too. They're not sure just they do. they're not just uh, yelling and screaming as kind of the characterization. That's what I would call it as far as with Greta. Yeah. Uh, this kind of characterization is like you're just yelling out all these things you don't even know kind of how that you know uh, the policies behind to be able to make those kind of changes etc cetera, etc cetera. it's called no a lot of the times it's well thought out uh the kids that uh, we're talking about gun violence uh, you know that we were talking built we, a movement that we talked about that last year uh, mm-hmm. throughout all of the different you know unfortunate crazy stupid school shootings but these kids not only had an idea, they also had some policies to go out and say, hey, we start doing these things that yeah. will at least help this situation, you know. Uh, so I, I think a lot of times we just ageism is real and we think that we know better and we know how to put people right into wherever they might need to. And a lot of times we, we should be listening to their ideas, their their solutions, uh, because they have a lot of great ones. So this um this tweet that you've put in our notes isn't an outrageous tweet. This this no, this seems like it's a, it's a it's an interesting tweet. It actually sparked a pretty interesting conversation. So so what's what's the tweet and what's your take? So this is from Dr. Will Dayimport, who is mm-hmm. amazing and he has his own podcast. Highly recommend it. Um he wrote this question out to Twitter and I think it's an important discussion to be had. It says, as a K-12 educator, do you consider yourself to be a subject matter expert in the subject you teach? I feel that having that wealth of knowledge in a subject area is more required and celebrated in higher education than it is in K-12. K-12 feels like it celebrates pedagogy the most. So I thought that was very interesting, and there's some great um, uh, responses to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the things that I thought of right away, too, is... For some reason, when we get into secondary education, we kind of like branch away uh, from pedagogy. Like 
it's like, no, the most important thing is the content that we're teaching, how we actually go about doing that and, 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 and that craft that we talk about, that magic that is teaching. Uh, that's kind of put off to the side. Taking a back you know what I mean? sure. And even, yep, yep, yep. even the concept of like, I could actually improve upon my practice through pedagogical techniques. I have a expertise in content knowledge. How do I, how do I fix up that part of my practice? Uh, a lot of teachers are just fine where they're at. They just like, this is what, what has been working. And I don't know why I would ever take a look at, you know, research, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. So it's interesting because then is the conversation that led to, is it different at elementary, secondary, and then specifically at the university level, it's yep. crazy how extreme to the content it is. Yeah, it gets worse. Yeah. So I, I, I think that each one of the levels could maybe use a little bit more balance. I don't know. What were you thinking? Sure. Well, I, I, he's not wrong. Like the tweet is dead on to begin with. Yes. And then a lot of the comments are really great. But I mean, I think that if there could be any more powerful educational revolution in terms of getting our kids on fire for learning and excited about learning, it would be shifting that high school piece to, to have a little more thought put into the pedagogy in terms of, you know, making, making the content exciting and engaging. Like we tried to do in elementary school. So like I spent my entire career trying to make, and I talk about it all the time. I use the word fun and, and Materi uses the word joy. And I mean, these are words we're using to frame elementary education that, that we need to find the joy in learning and we may need to make learning magical, like Tisha Richmond says. And I mean, but this is almost all focused on elementary, almost Mm. all. And I'm not saying that we need to treat our, you know, 17-year-olds like they're like they're eight, hmm. but I'm saying that every learner wants to be engaged Absolutely. in one way or another. And not just eight-year-olds, but 17-year-olds and 21-year-olds and 40-year-olds. Mm-hmm. We're all learners, and we all want to be engaged. We all want to learn the way that we want to learn. We all want to use the tools we like and we're comfortable using. We all want to be pushed in ways that are are, are um, empowering and give us voice. Um, we are all that. And... I think that in high school, we're definitely like, what is the date of the American Revolution? When did that start? And we need to, you know, spend a little more time, like you said. And like we, what what this is focusing on is a conversation about bringing a little more balance, mm-hmm. especially to that high school piece, so that we engage those learners too. Because you can't just go to elementary school, graduate grade eight, get to grade nine, and then it's the fun is lost. Because you can very quickly, especially in those formative years of a kid's life, you can lose them. You Absolutely. can lose them instantly, and they're gone. And their love of learning is lost, and their interest in in growing and developing is gone and especially at schools you're saying yeah. it, it might be, yeah they probably are still interested in learning and growing but not at school they are <laughs> you know we know they, they are they will continue to learn but it won't be 
because of anything that we did, you know, which is horrible. It'll be learning the things they want to learn, like how to be a better streamer on YouTube or Twitch and and how to, you know, do Photoshop and stuff like this. This is the stuff they go home and they study and they watch tutorials and they look at, you know, videos. And, um, you know, so I I think that this was a great conversation starter. We'll link the tweet just in case anyone wants to resurrect it and weigh in. Um, But I think it was a fabulous conversation. And this is the type of conversations that that I love having and, and I liked, I liked reading it. So I'm glad we, uh, we got to, to see it when we come back the bests this week, we're going to talk about some great books. So stay with us. On education is brought to you by fidgets. Fidgets are interactive USB sensors that support all major programming languages that make physical computing easy. Fidgets keep the emphasis on coding while increasing student engagement. And the best part is that you can get started for free right now. Simply go to bit.ly slash fidgets on education to get your introductory kit that includes a free sensor worth over $50. That's bit.ly slash fidgets on education. Welcome back to On Education and welcome to The Bests. Every week, Mike and I take you through a list of our top things from books to games, from people to ideas. And this week, we're talking about books by educators that we've either read or we plan to read soon. So if you're looking to build a book collection to get started, let's start here. Yes. So the first one on my list is one we talk about all the time. We've (laughs) talked to this author twice now. He's been on the podcast twice, but I still, I mean... I don't care. It's a no-brainer. The new, <laughs> the new childhood by Jordan Shapiro uh, is is you know if you are a teacher, if you are a parent, um, you know you need this is like the guidebook for raising your child in a digital world. Yes. I think it's I think it's um, I think it's a critical part of your collection. Absolutely. Totally agree, and I'm glad you put it on the list. Uh, the one that I was thinking about right away at the top was the probably, I would say, the most influential, and I mean, this is probably a hot take, the most influential education uh, book probably in the last 20 years, let's call it. And the reason why I want to say it that way is just how many people have actually not only read this book, but have been influenced by it to make impact in their schools, either for themselves, through their communities, uh, the school districts themselves. And that book is The Innovator's Mindset by George Kiros. If you haven't read the book, it's I would say it's a fantastic inspirational read that will fire you up to make differences, even if you can only make them you know, within your own small sphere, whatever that sphere may be. But then saying, hey, you have the impact to be able to do these great things both at your schools, at the districts, in your communities. Uh, it's just a fantastic read. Awesome book. Awesome dude. No brainer. Another another mm-hmm. another book that it seems to be on it would be on probably everyone's list. Um Mike Matera. Mm-hmm. Back before Mike Matera was our, our BFF, he wrote Explore Like a Pirate. Yes. And listen, um we've we've now since he's written this, we've been to Matera's house. Uh, and we've spent a lot of time with Mike and uh, hung out with him 
a lot. And listen, this dude is the real freaking deal when it comes to gamification. He's amazing. And, and games-based learning. The real deal. And it's not just like the content in this book. It is the... He, he embodies the ideals of that, including like his new... Like he's talking a lot. He's kind of, I wouldn't call it a pivot, but he's talking a lot about joy. That's mm-hmm. like his word now. And he's talking a lot about the things that you do in your teaching and in your life that bring you joy. Because if you have joy, everything is better. Yes. Like your your practice is better. Your life is better. Your family's better when you do the things that bring you joy. And I'll tell you, um, if you're looking to bring a little bit of joy into your life then then take a look at this book and 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 learn a little bit about gamification to make your class just a little more fun uh this this book's a winner oh absolutely um so another book that we've talked about uh probably quite a bit also is uh by michael cohen uh the tech rabbi educated by design and as i've gone through and now read the book for a second time and really focused in on on just all these awesome specific ideas on a variety of different educational topics and basically how to stop believing that you are not creative as an educator and that yeah. also you may pass that on and and that trait how eh, it's it's okay if it was an art class or whatever it might be your music or whatever it might be it's like no 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 this skill of creativity We've said is something super important in mm-hmm. almost every job field, especially any kind of job fields that have to do with you know, like the Googles or the you know the big companies or whatever it might be. That's the kind of people that they're actually looking for. So in, you know, basically, how do you uh, take that on as a educator? And then how do you pass that on and have your students create too and innovate uh, in your classes? fantastic read all kinds of ideas in there uh, to be able to apply it doesn't matter what content area or grade level you actually teach awesome book read it twice at least and i think i'm on i i, I read it a bit while we were in minnesota as well uh so third time's a charm there um one of my 2020 goals one of my big 2020 things is um I feel like I have the politics for this and I have the ideology for this, but I want to learn how to talk about race and education better. Mm-hmm. I want to, uh, I, I want to understand that world and not just, I feel like I understand it and I'm even having trouble with the vocabulary of what I'm looking to get out of it. But I want to, I want to just get a handle on like thinking the right things, framing things properly and with with the right perspective. So I'm thinking about books about race and education. And thankfully, actually, we have a lot of friends that have a lot of thoughts and knowledge about this. Um, I'm going to post a link in the show notes to a thread by our friend Mayor. Uh, who who has a list, um, and this list has been corroborated by other people. Um, so so it's there is some unanimity. Unanimity. It's fairly unanimous mm-hmm. what these books, you know, should be. That if you're looking to get a handle on race and education, things like White Fragility, which is a very 
best-selling. Uh, it was a bestseller. Uh, it won't be easy by our friend Tom Rademacher. Um, and then a couple books. Uh, you know, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? How to be an anti-racist. Um, these books are 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 definitely regarded as as kind of if you're looking to build a toolkit to to think about race and education these are some of the books that you should be thinking about so so uh my number five is 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 books about race and education in general so we already talked about michael matera and explore like a pirate but if you just want a book that gives you a wide swath of uh i want to call it gamification game-based learning and then everything else in between uh, yeah. If you want to see some examples and then some links to those specific, uh, whatever, explorations of, of different types of topics, you want to go ahead and check this book out by Matthew Farber, and it's called Gamify Your Classroom. And in it are, I think, I want to say 16 to 18 chapters, and each one is a specific topic. And actually, Michael Matera is one of the people in one of the chapters that has uh, to do with gamification. Um, nice. I just happened to be in it too for two pages. I'm pretty proud of that. There you <laughs> about, go. About Minecraft, uh, especially using it in a second language classroom. So many great ideas. You can. You don't have to even go from front cover to back cover. It's one of those you can just open it up, kind of take a look at a chapter, and then get ideas right away. That's the best part about it. I really like the ideas and then the research behind it and then kind of some furthering application questions you know those kinds of things so uh gamify your classroom very cool and last but not least i love this new wave of kids books written by educators but for kids um there's some great people doing great work in this world um and the books are wonderful I think it's awesome when uh, you you see teachers writing kids books. There's something special to it. Uh, I had three on my mind. Um, Jeff Kubiak, uh, One Drop of Kindness, which is out now and um, and and very very well received. Uh, our friend Amanda Fox, Zombie a Design Thinker, which we have. She sent a copy of it for my boys and that was so nice of her um is is a great book and my very good friend a canadian fellow canadian daphne mcmenemy just wrote a book with brian aspinall called gracie um and it is absolutely wonderful uh we will put links to all three of those books in the show notes gracie one drop of kindness and zombie a design thinker so that you can take a look at those um, so those are three kids books about education by educators. It's a fantastic segment. So you can always come back to this segment of the best by checking out our blog at oneducationpodcast.com, or you can watch it on YouTube. Just search for on education and check out the playlist. When we come back, we'll be joined by Ken Shelton. Stay with us.
All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We're welcoming FETC 2020 featured presenter Ken Shelton onto the show. Ken is a veteran educator and speaker on a variety of educational technology, equity and inclusion, multimedia literacy, and instructional design topics. Man, that's everything. He has been named to the California State Superintendent of Public Instruction's Educational Technology Task Force. Nice. Welcome to On Education, Ken. Hey, hey, thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. We should so, have made my bio longer. Dude, <laughs> that, that had a lot of cool stuff in it, man. I was just like, That's wow. impressive. We have to read yeah, that. Yeah. Yes. So for anyone who hasn't met you or is unfamiliar with your work, maybe you could share a little bit about yourself, a bit of your backstory. What's led you to talking to us today? So basically the short version of what could be a, a really long bio, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, I worked in education for a long time. Uh, I was a classroom teacher in the Los Angeles Unified School District for about 18 years. And, um, you know, ultimately as my career evolved and my desires, passions and pursuits began to broaden and grow, I just, I had an overwhelming desire to want to share more of my learning with more than just the students that I had in the classroom at the time. And so mm -hmm. um, I was afforded opportunities to speak at uh, local small conferences. And that kind of, if you will, was a spark towards me continuing to pursue that as both, um, you know, an area of passion as well as an area of importance. And, you know, my philosophy then, as it remains now, is as long as what I talk about is meaningful, practical and relevant, then it will never be outdated. And so that's why my, you know, you've listed all those different topics. I mean, if you figure there, each one of those has is different now than it was even 10 years ago. Sure. Yeah. Uh, totally. Even when I first started. So for me, it's, you know, I don't. I don't think I'll ever be good at everything, but I want to be as good as I possibly can be at the many things that I am passionate about. So that's what led me to having opportunities like being able to spend this time with uh, the two of you on this, as well as, you know, speaking at various conferences. And, you know, again, for me, as long as I'm relevant and my voice is, uh, is needed and is going to be uh, both constructive and supportive for educators in what they do, then I'm going to continue to do it. Uh, for as long as I can. So, Ken, I had the privilege of listening to you speak in Minneapolis at what was formerly called the Ties Conference. And your message during that keynote was absolutely fantastic. And I mean, this was probably three years ago, I think. And I still remember this. Um, and now I serve as a tech integration as an, an instructional coach. And I wanted to talk about educational technology and specifically a term that you often use called techquity. So what is techquity and, and how... Why should we uh, be wanting to learn more about this? Okay. Well, first of all, that, that Ties conference was a wonderful experience, and uh, the the Minnesota winter didn't turn me away. <laughs> um, I would say the warmth of the room kept me oh. you know, distracted <laughs> from the actual temperature outside. Um, but yeah, so techquity is a word that a term that I like to use. Um, and for your audience, uh, it is not a term that I have originated. It is a term that you know it's essentially technology and equity combined, and it's something that you know I have essentially said. Okay, this is a good encapsulation of my perspective as it has evolved over the last, I would say, five to seven years in regards to, you know, tech technology. So 
just to give you a little bit of the background, you know, early on, many of my talks and my sessions were around the use of technology in general. Like, we mm -hmm. need to be using it. It's the wave of the future. It's where our kids are at. It's what they learn on. It, it does amazing things. And this is even pre-SAMR model. Yeah. And, and, and now you're seeing more and more um, prevalence of technology being used. And, and it's still a long ways to go, which is why I have such a very firm stance on digital equity, which is basically – um, access to devices and and a a what I would call a robust infrastructure, i.e., mm. all of our children have access to broadband both in the school and in the, their and communities. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And so then, when you get the tech equity aspect into it, it's okay if we have access to technology. How can we combine the effective use of educational technology aligned with both culturally responsive and culturally relevant learning experiences? Yes. Put those two together to provide students with what I call a contemporary temporary, meaningful, and accessible educational experience. Hmm. Because the technology itself isn't enough. There has to be the culturally responsive and culturally relevant aspect applied to it, which gives you, you know, more access to authentic voices, representations, and all of those things. I mean, even even in terms of, of my use of the word inclusion, where, you know, I'll even share with, with, with you two, you know, I don't show a video that doesn't have closed captioning turned on. Mm -hmm. uh, all of my sessions that I do now, I, I always, and I, I do it anyway, but I make it a point to emphasize that you should always encourage and, and, and quite frankly, insist that the presenter use the microphone. Yes. And, and, you know, and all those, these are aspects of technology, but they are aligned with equity because they are saying, what are some of the barriers that exist to sure. learning? Yeah. And what are those barriers? What, what among those barriers can I remove to make it more yeah, accessible? Yeah, yeah. And then in turn, in this case, you know, again, more culturally responsive and culturally relevant, which goes even deeper than just an accessibility uh, perspective. I um this this techity issue is actually uh, quite a, a big conversation piece in in my line of work with Logics Academy. Um, you know, Canada is a big country, and there's people kind of everywhere, but in a lot of places, in especially northern Ontario, um, and and these rural. They're, they're super far apart and uh, they have very limited access to resources and technology. And so we're trying to find ways um, and having these conversations about how to deliver like robots and laptops to places like native reserves, First Nations reserves in northern Ontario. Um, I was just in Thunder Bay, which is like way up northern Ontario. Um, and like they're telling they come down to Thunder Bay from like like reserves like three four hours away north still and they say listen we we this is a, we have to come down here to get anything uh even sometimes internet um so when we want to like when we know we're coming down for a weekend we bring all of our our, our district's laptops and devices down just so we can go in the hotel room and download firmware updates and stuff like that um I say all that to like I mean so you're thinking about this stuff and and I am too and I'm wondering if you've solved any of this or have any thoughts on you know what we what we can do to limit these gaps that we're seeing in in these rural places that that you know we know need access to this stuff just as much as anywhere else so I'm glad that's a I'm glad you brought that up because that that is a byproduct or a component of some of the work that I did with our previous state superintendent on the task force because the whole theme of that task force was no child left offline. 
Sure. And so, so, so there's a couple of things to share with you uh, on that in response to your, you know, what you're bringing up. One is the access is not limited to devices or the internet. When I think in terms of limited access or no access, it's even things like the breadth of courses offered at the school, the mm. types of courses offered at the school. I mean, there's lots of schools here in the States and especially in many of our, our urban and rural areas where the high schools don't have access to honors classes because they can't hire the teachers because the teachers, you know, they're just, they don't have the pool of teachers for that. So, sure. so to answer your question in regards to that, I think it all goes down to one foundational uh, resolution. And that is there has to be a purposeful investment in having the infrastructure in place to get broadband out to our most remote rural areas, as well as, you know, again, our urban areas as well. And, and, and when I say investment, a lot of times what I hear, unfortunately, especially in certain from certain, let's just say, political perspectives is, oh, there's a cost associated, a cost associated, there's a cost associated. And I always encourage educators to be able to effectively articulate the difference between an investment and an expenditure. What you're talking mm -hmm. about, what we're talking about here is an investment because ultimately you still have these communities that should be served just like any other community. There's still children that should have access. That access should be reliable. That access should be, you know, again, broadband. And, and I've seen instances where some rural communities have said, okay, we're not going to wait for the municipality or the municipal government or the state government or the provincial government to do it. We're going to leverage whatever contacts we have or re relationships we have with some of our telcos. So what we did here in California with the state superintendent was say, okay, what are the relationships we have with the AT&Ts, with the Verizons, with the Sprints? And obviously for you up in Canada, you have Rogers and you have Bell. Or those are the two big ones yeah and it's okay so we already have a relationship with them so what can we do from a policy level to say we're willing to either subsidize or incentivize you to put the infrastructure in place so that these communities whether they're in the middle of an urban environment and they're so they're uh, uh, economically challenged or a rural environment where they may have an economical challenge and a geographical challenge. What can we do to put it in place so that over a, a, a time frame and not five, 10 years, talking about like one to two max so that they have broadband access. And I've seen in some cases where some communities have leveraged those uh, those, those relationships to not only ensure low or no cost broadband access in the home, but they've mm -hmm. done it where they've had Wi-Fi access points in the community as well. So it's no longer just in the home, it's out in the community as well. And so yeah. then it becomes a shared network that everyone has access to. So again, it's no longer, it's not an expenditure, it's an investment. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, if I'm a parent of a child, I want to be in a position where I can support my child's learning. I can support the teacher who's helping my child learning, which means I need to have access comparable to what they might have in the school as well. Yes. So let's um, let's talk about a different kind of equity. You're, you're doing a lot of talking and writing and thinking um, in the kind of um, the D, DEI space, I, yeah. I guess we'll call it. And um, I, I I was reading um, some some stuff on your on your blog, and and this quote just hit me um, merely mandating or treating equity work as just another PD will not only diminish the value it will also lead to a mindset that is a very low value that it is a very low value um, thinking about 
this this the training and professional development about this stuff um and and it's funny we had tom uh Rademacher on the podcast uh while we were at at um impact and and he was talking about how you know you can't just like wave magic wands at this stuff and and say ah oh, you know i've i've covered equity and diversity and solved all of the racial problems in my school um you you can't just like harry potter it away right. um and so a, a, a lot of administrators listen to this podcast and we hope at least um that they're thinking um a lot about um how to do professional learning in the DEI space. So what do you say to them? Where where do we start? Because you have to even, like, you just got to start doing this stuff to start having these conversations. What's important? And, and I think critically, um, what is a distraction? Because I think that there are potentially some red herrings in this conversation too. What What should a district's goals be when starting to talk about um, uh, DEI and equity and diversity in in their in their schools. Well, and thank you for bringing that up. I, I I'll start off by by saying and sharing that it needs to happen now. Yeah. And you know, I my approach. You know, I've seen all signs of different folks in this space, and uh, you know, and of course, I, I I'm not the only voice, and nor should I be the only voice. Um, this, this, I think this area of work and this work in general should be, um, from a, a myriad of those within the community who, you know, I would say part of the vetting process should be, you know, who has the experience on a personal level, who has the experience on a professional level, are their intentions genuine? Are they purposeful? Uh, and then quite frankly, I would even encourage any school administrator or district level administrator or school board administrator, they should ask the tough questions just to be able to identify those that are in, in the space merely for a money grab versus those who are truly want to see movement in the right direction in this area. And I share that because, you know, I've seen, unfortunately, a lot of instances where the work is being done, and I do that in air quotes because it's they, they approach it as a checkbox. Okay, great. We did that. We're done. And, and, and that not only trivializes, it actually marginalizes the work. And I've also been asked a question, and actually, and, and it's interesting when I share this because a lot of people, I get varying reactions, but I will share before I tell you what I'm asked that I'm glad and, and I feel I'm, I'm happy that people are, are comfortable and confident enough to be able to ask me questions like, Ken, my school is all white. Why should we have anything to do with diversity, equity, inclusion? Yes. And so my response to them is kind of my response to this whole thing. Ultimately, most adults that aren't capable, willing, or able to have these conversations is a byproduct of the environments they were exposed to when they were in school. If you aren't in, if you aren't provided the mechanism, platform, terminology, and conversational strategies to be able to talk about these things at a young age, you're not going to automatically have them when you're an adult. And especially mm -hmm. given the fact that some of us, you know, from my perspective, it's not, it's not a function of, well, it's something I need to learn. In many cases for me growing up, it's a function of survival. Mm -hmm. 
But by the same token, for those that have said to me, well, I have an all-white school, why should it matter for me? Again, for me, I'm glad they asked that question because they clearly understand, okay, can I someone who I'm comfortable and confident enough to be able to broach this subject about, and he's going to give me – uh, he's going to engage with me in what, what I always share is constructive dialogue, not destructive dialogue, one. And two, do it in a way that will help get me thinking and ideally will give me some actionable steps going forward. And my first response is always, well, the first answer I have is the fact that you and I are talking right now. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to provide our students with meaningful cross-cultural educational experiences because that's the world that we live in. Yes, being able to develop the platform, the awareness, and the understanding for agreement, uh, for understanding rather, does not require agreement. And that's the thing. That's where I think people get caught up. Well, if we talk about this, it means that we have to agree on everything. No, it means that we have to be able to be equipped with the uh, uh, strategies to be able to, to talk about it in the first place and be able to make meaningful cross-cultural connections that at least help develop more uh, broad-based degrees of understanding, which broaden our perspective. It's not a function of changing your mind. You know, again, the, the, the pathway towards empathetic understanding is, is, is the understanding and the conversation to lead to understanding in the first place. And so in terms with schools, you see, you, I, I, sadly, I see the data that's not just limited, by the way, to the U.S. I've seen it in at least a half a dozen other countries where, you know, you, if you look at the pathway towards success, what is the demographic of students that you could say, okay, they're for sure going to be successful? And then what is that demographic of students that either don't get access to, you know, things like the sciences and the engineering, don't get access to varying degrees of the arts, don't get access to, you know, a broader educational experience, are, are, are more apt to be subjected to draconian uh, disciplinary policies on campus, yes. are more apt to be, um, uh, their, 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 their cultural norms are, are perceived as outside the norm, i.e. they don't fit my idea of the norm, so therefore they're, they're met with punitive measures rather than, okay, this is something I'm not exposed to or I'm not accustomed to, help me understand better. I, uh, I was in a conversation with a school district um, about a month ago that I, I am, am uh, likely to have the privilege of working with where they have a dance program. And they had a large group of students who said, well, we want to be in a dance program, but we don't want to do that kind of dance. We want to be able to do step dancing. And of course, you know, if you look at the history around uh, black fraternities and black sororities, especially here in the U.S., they do step dancing. And I'm like, okay, but do you know what step dancing comes from? Which comes from gumshoe dancing, which is what the black South Africans in the mines used to do. And that was their way of communicating. Hmm. And so my whole point with that was like, there's a whole rich culture behind that. To the credit of the school, they said, okay, we want to have a more broader dance program that includes step dancing rather than, no, you have to do this and then that's the end. And and I think that, that the more that we do those things, and I even said, you know, what you'll find is you will find that a lot of the students that weren't exposed to step dancing are going to probably have a little bit of an interest in it. Which means that in the end, all the students win because they've now taken dance as an overarching program and created mother, mo- multiple uh, representations of it that are going to a- 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 acknowledge and honor the culture of the students who requested it, but also provide access yeah. to students yes. that would never be exposed to that. And ultimately, in the end, with all of that, whether it's reading, whether it's film, whether it's writing, uh, uh, dance, uh, art, all of these things, I just, I'm of the perspective that the more we're exposed to 
more things, to broaden our perspective, to broaden our understanding, the more we have a higher degree of not only empathy for those that have uh, challenges that we don't have and that we associate with privilege, the more we'll be able to make more meaningful cross-cultural connection, which to me makes education a better place, which ultimately can make you know, our, our communities and our world a better place. It's not going to solve all the problems, but those are the human elements that we can begin a pathway towards resolution and, for some folks, reconciliation. Ken, we, we had Jimmy Casas on the podcast a few weeks ago. Love Jimmy. And, and I, yes, he's amazing. And I asked him a similar question to this, but I, I was drawing on my background of being a, uh, a Latin American uh, born in El Paso, Texas, and my mom coming from Mexico, crossing the border illegally, and and talking about educators of color. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I was thinking about educational leadership positions or speaking on these main keynote stages, which Jimmy and you have actually basically broken that barrier. But I still think there's a lot of these barriers that we still need to remove to get more voices and a more uh, better cross-section of of, of the wonderful people and messages that we have throughout the nation. What are some of those barriers to entry for you know, our educators of color, but even into the profession, you can even go back to that, you know, go start there. You're absolutely right. Uh, I will say the first barrier to the profession is the representations in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a cycle and, and, and I do share that, you know, it's amazing how if you really start to peel back some of the platitudes and and, and the, the, the norms in education that are around, oh, everything's great and you're amazing, you start to see that many of the barriers and obstacles that exist are a byproduct of what education is intended to do. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes self-serving. And then that, that cycle just continues. And and I'll rewind all the way back to, which I believe I, I – I don't know if I shared it in Minnesota, but I did have the privilege of being one of the keynote speakers for the ISTE affiliate in Iowa. And I shared it on the stage there that if you take my entire schooling, so you take K through 12, undergraduate, and graduate school, I had one teacher that looked like me. Mm-hmm. And it was my sophomore yeah. year at UCLA. It was my sociology professor. So that's the start right that's there. It. If you don't, if you don't have the representations that you can say, okay, I see someone that looks like me, or someone who has a similar background as me, or similar identity as me, that is now something that, if I wanted to, I could pursue that because I've seen a representation that I identify with. So that's a start. And you know, there, there's a. It, the the representations in classrooms and in school leadership is is, is not is not as broad based as it should be, and I think that that ended up morphing itself into what we end up seeing on stages. Now, mm-hmm. I'll be the first to say that I acknowledge the opportunities that I've been provided. Um, I I will say that I I certainly put in the time and the work to be the best me that I can be. Absolutely. I recognize that you know, especially with some of the areas, some of my passion areas and the things that I talk about, I'm not going to be given access to some stages. It's mm-hmm. just a reality, um, you know. And 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 as for for whatever reasons that are given for me being denied access to a stage, I I would say I've got at least a half a dozen other examples of folks that are like, well, we do want you on stage, so. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's never going to be all. And I and I, I it's been hard for me to reconcile with that, which I would say over the last 12 months, I've been able to to just accept that. And with that being said, when you're on stage, that then turns into and it's interesting, the psychology behind this. I've actually had teachers come up to me. And again, for me, it's for anyone who's listening to this podcast, 
I don't shun people. I don't provide, I don't, I don't want to have conversations where, you know, there's the whole shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. It's we're in this together. And, 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 and once we recognize that we all have different perspectives, different backgrounds, different experiences, and the more you honor the differences, the more you're able to make those meaningful cross-cultural connections. I've actually had teachers come up to me and say, you know, I, I, I listened to your talk, I've seen you on stage, and it really got me thinking about what my perspective is and how I see, in the case with me, how I see my African-American male students. Mm. And I always follow up with saying, okay, so tell me more. How do you see them? And and, and, the, and several teachers have said, you know, I now now recognize that I need to see them as being successful and me being the catalyst for providing the support for them to be successful. Mm. Now, I could take that and say, well, then what were you seeing before that? That's true. Yes. But, 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 then, no but then now, you see, that becomes, again, remember I mentioned constructive versus destructive. That's when it becomes destructive because yeah. now it's like, okay, if I were to respond like that way, then that, that, that inevitably would create in many well, of guilt and shame. For me, it's like, okay, perfect. Now, what can I do to support you going forward? And the first step, I would say, is to acknowledge to your students that you want to be purposeful in ensuring that all of your students have a pathway towards success. It means they have to do the work and they have to walk the path, but you as a teacher in the classroom or the administrator in school is going to be purposeful in saying what are some of the potential obstacles that exist as a component of the structure that's in place now that I can remove so that it makes it for your pathway that you have to walk, you have a more clear pathway towards success. And so oh, I think boy. that I, I think ultimately it's it's like I said I think it's 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 a myriad of perspective it's who's on stage who's in a classroom whose voices are being heard whose stories are being told how are those stories being told how are those stories being honored and what are we doing to emphasize the fact that you know even in the context like you mentioned with Minnesota that was myself and my 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 dear friend Jenny McGarrah how many conferences have had an African American male and a Korean American female as their yes. primary keynote speakers. That's that's a good question. None, <laughs> hardly any. And so, then, so there you go. So there's the the experiential message of the keynote itself, but then there's the optics of what that's saying to the audience, and that's why I love that conference. I, I'm telling you, I had so many amazing conversations with educators after those keynotes, and then I did my session titled "Designing a Culture of Relevant and Responsive Pedagogy," where it really emphasized the message that was partially in the keynote, which that keynote was the power of voice in a digital age, was all around student empowerment and student activism. Mm-hmm. And I even I had the privilege of speaking at one of the ISTE events that was in New Orleans this last October where the organizers specifically wanted me to talk about my title was on going from student voice to student empowerment because student voice isn't enough. And so, I, I again, it's, it's, it's being able to be authentic in who we are as ourselves, being able to be our whole self and being able to say, this is who I am. I recognize that if there's a thousand people, it's not going to resonate with 1,000. But it will resonate with enough that it's worthwhile for me to be my whole self and to share my story, even if it means that there are certain schools or school districts or conferences that are going to say it's too controversial. We can't have that. We have to have someone who's going to tell us we're all amazing and talk about the latest Web <laughs> 2.0 tools. <laughs> Oh, Web 2.0. That's when you know you've, you're bringing it. Boy, exactly. Oh and, you know, and I, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be hypercritical of those folks, but, but, but I do ask the question: If you've brought in the same speakers who've done the same thing and the same type of message, if you were to take a more pragmatic and, and, and scrutinizing look 
at the data and the pathways towards success and the accessibility, yeah. has it changed at all if you've continued to have those same types of speakers? And I already know the answer to that. And I do think there's a way to push push our own thinking, again, that is for growth and being constructive rather than destructive and, and being shameful or, or guilt-ridden. There it is. Uh, Ken, we're going to debut a, a new question here on you. You're our guinea pig for this one. And uh, we're, we're going to ask it uh, of all of our future guests. So I, I'm a, I'm a, I've been working on this for, for a couple of days now, thinking about how to ask this. Anyways, here we go. I'm, I'm building it up, but this is like I'm hype. Um, so what are – and I'm super curious about this, especially from you. I think you're the first perfect person to ask this to. What are three pieces of media, be it a book, a movie – TV show, YouTube video, whatever, podcast, that have shaped your thinking, influenced you, inspired you, or that you're applying right now that you could recommend to our listeners? Oh, three pieces easy. of three pieces. <laughs> that's easy. got this. <laughs> Love it. Three pieces so, uh, of media. Before I answer the question, I will, I will preface it by saying I am a voracious reader. So I, I, I set a goal. It's probably been about five years. Five years ago, my goal was to read a book a week. Okay. Wow. My uh, mom actually just did that. Just wow. finished her last it, book today. It's actually not as hard as it sounds because uh, it sounds impossible. Figure, <laughs> well, but, but listen, hear me out on this. If you dedicate yourself to reading to anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes a day, think about how many pages you're going to get through over the course of seven days. Mm-hmm. And if the reading you're doing, you already have a, a, a passion and an interest in, then it's not reading as a task. It's reading for personal growth and enrichment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I encourage educators to do that. Now, for me, it's a book a week. Um, so to answer your question um, along reading, I would say the two books that, especially recent books, that I would say have served as a foundational component to how I think, what I do, and what I'm currently working on now as far as writing for my own book, which my goal is to release the book in 2020. Number one is called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in a Cafeteria by Dr. Beverly Tatum. Hmm. And that book should be, I'm going to make a bold statement. That book should be required reading for every single student in every single teacher prep program in the entire U.S. And quite frankly, because I have the privilege of spending a lot of time doing a lot of work with various school boards across most of the provinces in Canada, at least those that border the U.S. border, as well as a few others, and have made meaningful contacts with a lot of First Nations educators, that book alone would be one. Recently, uh, it's a book that a lot of educators have read that I've, I've said, look, this will help you grow as an individual. It will broaden your perspective as an educator. Um, and it's called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Hmm. And then the third book I would I, I, I recommend, and there I have a whole list. And in fact, I have a whole list of books on my website that if you want to include links in the show notes, we will. the books are, are, are divided into four different thematic areas. There is the uh, telescopes, microscopes, mirrors, and magnifying glasses. Hmm. And so the telescopes are historical narratives that provide a, 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 a – they bring you know historical narratives to a closer view and broaden your perspective on things that you weren't aware of or that we haven't been taught historically speaking, the microscopes provide a much more scrutinizing analysis. So, for example, Dr. Beverly Tatum's book is in the microscopes. Hmm. 
the mirrors, which Dr. Kendi's book and his previous book called Stamp from the Beginning is in the mirrors as well. And then a book by uh, Dr. Robin D'Angelo called White Fragility. That's in the mirror. That's basically mm-hmm. holding a mirror, a mirror to yourself and saying, who am I as an individual? What is my identity? How does my identity play a role in the biases that I have? How do those play a role in the actions and interactions that I have with others? Okay, and then the magnifying glasses uh, and 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 um, um, binoculars, if you will, are things like short readings and podcasts. Mm-hmm. So there's Dr. Beverly Tatum's book, Dr. Kendi's book, and another one who's one of my favorites is Dr. Chris Emden called uh, "For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood" and the rest of y'all too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those are the three books. Podcasts. I've got a whole list, but I'll narrow it down <laughs> to a few. So. Um, uh, and they're, again, they're on my website too. There's uh, uh, NPR. There's Code Switch by NPR, which is an amazing podcast. And one of the there's there's a couple of episodes I always encourage folks to listen to. One is called uh, Code Switch Goes to College, and it, and in that particular episode, they talk about a class at the University of Texas San Antonio, where the class is all about how, being able to have conversations like what we're having, and something happened. And even though the class is designed to that, when an incident happened, all of a sudden the dynamic of the class completely changed. It, it's, it's amazing. Um, there's another one called We Talk Different. Uh, and uh, again, on my website, I have the specific episodes, and there's two episodes in there where they interview Dr. D'Angelo. Hmm. Um, and um, I love, absolutely love, 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 he's one of my favorites, is uh, Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. Those are my mm. top three. And, and, and for educators, though, for revisionist history, there's a few specific ones. There's Miss Buchanan's Period of Adjustment, which I don't remember the episode number, but there's Miss Buchanan's Period of Adjustment. Um, oh, and there's a recent one from this last season. I'm drawing a blank on it. It's the music one. It's where he, he talks about cultural appropriation. And he uses uh, Elvis and Pat Boone in it uh, around music, um, how, you know, they, they, they did music. And when they appropriated, you know, black culture, all of a sudden their music took on a completely different uh, um, degree of, of, of notoriety and stuff. I, I don't remember the name, the mm-hmm. specific, but it's this most recent season. But, but those for sure. Um, and then, of course, with readings, I mean, outside of books, um, you had Tom, Tom uh, as a guest. I love the stuff he posts. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's he he is what I differentiate between um, an ally and an accomplice. An ally is I agree, I understand, I share your perspective, and that kind of is it. An accomplice is I agree, I understand, I share your perspective, I've recognized some of my thinking gaps, and I'm going to take action against them. And it's something it's a it's a quote that I share from Dr. Beverly Tatum's book where, you know, she talks about um, life and education is like a moving sidewalk. And this is where even Dr. Kendi uh, uh, talks about a little bit in his book on how to be an anti-racist where, you know, he juxtaposes there's no such thing as I'm not racist. There's either I go with the status quo, which if you look at certain policies and structures, they maintain a racial hierarchy or I go against it. And Dr. Beverly Tatum's metaphor in that is life is a moving sidewalk. And at some point, we have to be willing to turn around and walk against it. And so for me, in, in terms of education, it's what are some of the systemic structures in place that perpetuate the predictability of success, the predictability of access, and what can we do to turn around and go against those? Because otherwise, we're going to continue to repeat the unwanted results of the past. Ken Shelton exceeding expectations. I asked for three, and he gives us. <laughs> you did a, six. an amazing job there. And actually, you were you kept mentioning Ken 
we want to give you an opportunity to go ahead and give our audience how they can connect with you. You talked about a website too, yeah, where so a bunch of your resources are there. Yeah, KennethShelton.net. Um, I've got a number of blog postings on there. Uh, like I said, I have that four-part series. Um, I did another posting that I, I brought back. I, I'm going to be bringing it back every year on uh, understanding cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I just did a recent one, well, recent based on how frequently I'm posting on there, um, titled Why Your DEI Plans Might Be DOA. Mm-hmm. Um and that's where you pulled the quote from, where I talk mm-hmm. about, look, if you're if you're truly intentional and purposeful on looking at diversity, equity, inclusion, then there are certain things that you need to make sure you have foundational things you need to make sure you have in place. Otherwise, your plans are going to be that you're, you're not going to see the movement you want to see, the changes you want to see and the results that you uh, would expect from that. And I, 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 I as much as I'm not a resolutions kind of guy, I have made a resolution in air quotes, and that is to be. Be more purposeful of getting more posts because I have a lot of educators say, look, I, I, I what you've written has resonates with me. I've seen you talk. You know, I, I would like to see more, which is precisely why I've, I've been encouraged by many of my very close friends in education to start putting w- words on screen so that I can get a book and then to get more uh, blog postings out. I mean, one of my best friends who I love dearly is George Kuros, and he's mm. he's like he's one of my biggest. I mean, I I. To say I love him dearly is an understatement, but he's constantly encouraging me to, you got to write more, bro. You got to write more. You got to get your book out, publish books. I will support you, whatever you need. You know, like I said, I've been close friends with George for years and, and, and he, 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 he's basically a brother to me. I mean, you know, I, I told him brotherly, brotherly love is not limited to, uh, blood relations. And, and, and he's, again, he's one of my biggest, biggest advocates, biggest fans. And and the love between the two of us is is absolutely mutual. So I get I get those DMs from George too. He uh, beats me for not writing. Every every <laughs> once in a while he'll be like, "Dude, what the hell? Yeah, get clickety clack, brother. Let's go." Yeah, yeah. that's he, what he basically he says to me. He kicks my butt. <laughs> exactly. And you know, and and, and kind of just just to share a side note as far as George goes, you know, in the context of our conversation, you know, he and I have had like really meaningful just conversations you know i know his background he knows my background we couldn't be any different as regards to our upbringing and our background but yet you know we 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 again the importance of the cross-cultural connections and and he and i are better better human beings and educators because of that and that's why he can encourage me and i can encourage him and I'm a, like I said, I'm, I'm an, I'm an unwavering, loyal, supportive fan right. of his because not just because of what he says and what he writes, but because of who he is. And, and I just, I would love to see that dynamic more ubiquitous in education between the teachers, the educators, the administrators, the teachers, and more specifically the connections that they're able to effectively make uh, with their students, regardless of the demographic, regardless of the identity, regardless of the gender, regardless of the gender identity. It's just across the board because we just ultimately become better people. Hmm. There you go. Shout out, George. Shout out to George. Uh, FETC 2020 is coming to Miami in just a couple weeks registration is still open uh you can learn more about all of ken's sessions and what he's going to be talking about by going to fetc.org ken we will see you there in just a couple weeks uh make sure you make sure you stop by the table and uh and sit down and and chat with us even then uh thanks for thanks for coming on the podcast thank you both for having me a privilege to spend this time with you and i hope your listeners will gain 
not just some insight, but, but a broader perspective on the conversation we've had. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter. And I can be found on Twitter at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Classcraft, for supporting us. Check out classcraft.com slash oneducation to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.